We're in this uh, series in winter called Discern, Discern, and what we looked at last week was the subject of God's will. How do you discern God's will? How do you understand God's will? And what we sort of figured out intuitively at the beginning there is that we all use pretty well the same kinds of questions to discern anything. And, you know, who, what, where, when, why, how, that's what you teach your kids. Your kids are always asking those kinds of questions. Those are questions that help you figure things out. They help you discern things. And really, that's what, I know some Christians don't like the word, but that's what science is. You, you are trying to observe things. You're trying to figure out why. You're trying to discern. That's what it is, folks. I always get nervous uh, when people of faith, you know, they start saying things like science and scripture contradict and all of this kind of thing. Folks, like, you, you really got to understand the Christian faith is not at all incompatible with figuring life out and figuring things out and why do things do the things that they do and why are things this way and when does this happen and why does it happen that's what science is every time you pick up a, a bible and you read the bible you're doing science do you know why because none of you speak the language of the bible do any of you speak uh, 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 biblical hebrew sure do any of you speak aramaic Probably not. Do any of you speak uh, New Testament Greek? Okay, so you're 0 for 3. So, so what happens is you pick up your Bible in whatever modern language, and you are depending on the science of these translators to accurately translate those languages into whatever language. You're depending on them. They've supposedly asked these questions as they're translating. Who, what, where, when, why, how? And they try to translate it accurately into a modern language, folks. So we discern all the time. We ask these questions all the time. And I would challenge you to sort of survey your day and see how often you do this. You do this all the time. Probably some of you do this hundreds of times a day in certain decisions that you have to make. You're discerning all the time. So you can use this in, the, in your spiritual life as well. It's not just for sort of, you know, the, the boring natural world, if you will. You can use this in your spiritual life. You can use this to discern God's will. Maybe some of you tried to memorize the passage from last week. Any of you remember what it was? Oh, boy. Starts with an R. R-O, R-O-M, Romans, okay, good, you're halfway there, Romans what, 12, good, you're almost there, you're really hot now, what are the verses, there we go, who said that, okay, come and see me at the end, I got a prize for you at the end, I'm just kidding, okay, so that, that, that passage there describes this kind of thing as it relates to God's will, it does a really, will, it does a really good job. Today, we're going to talk about the subject of good and evil. How do you discern good and evil? Now, when the scripture uses these terms, good and evil, <clears throat> these are very strong, you know, especially the term evil gets us in the modern world thinking about whatever things come to our mind. But when the Bible uses this term, 
it's synonymous with right and wrong. Uh, it's synonymous, sometimes there's images, uh, especially in John's gospel, light and darkness. What is moral, what is evil, what is good, what is not good. These, this is all in the same sort of bucket. And the question is, how do you discern good from evil, or if you will, right from wrong, or light from darkness? Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, that's really easy, you know, and you think that the world is kind of black and white. Um, you will discover the more that you attempt to live Christianly, if you will, in this world, you will discover whether you like it or not, that the world is not black and white. There's gray all over the place. And it is not an easy task, you will find, to discern between good and evil. Not always. Some things are very easy to discern, and some things are not. They require a great uh, uh, process that the Bible uh, describes here. We'll get into this in a few moments. But this subject of good and evil is paramount to what we read in the Bible. You see it right from the origins there. If you go back into the book of Genesis, you're going to see this front and center. It's, uh, it's of central importance to the story of the beginning. And regardless of whatever you may think about Genesis chapter 3, I want to show you something here and take a little journey with you from Genesis way into uh, the time of the New Testament following this subject of good and evil, which, again, it's a major, major theme in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 and uh, just a few verses there, you know the story, I'm sure, in one shape or another. Again, whatever you may think about this, you know, I, people get into debates and you say, come on, you believe that there's a talking snake, this nonsense, you know, you take this too literally, blah, 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 whatever, whatever you want to go there, it's fine, up to you. But uh, I, that, doesn't, that doesn't take away from the fact that the scripture is quite keen on presenting something to us about the subject of good and evil here. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? She replies to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. It's a conversation between Eve and this serpent figure, whatever it may be. There's some type of dialogue. There's some type of conversation. There is a tree that God has restricted from Adam and from Eve, and has explicitly told them, if you eat from this tree, you are going to die. The tempter comes and says, you, verse 4, will not certainly die. Two different messages. God is saying to them, you will die if you eat from this tree. 
The serpent is challenging this and saying, no, you will not. One of them's right and one of them's wrong. They both can't be right. Here's his line, though. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. There, sorry, I was a little behind there. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice, this is very, very slick, folks. Again, whatever your, your views are, you know, in terms of the, the historicity of all of this, do what you want with it, folks. That's a, that's a ball of yarn that would take about five sermons to, to explain to you. But here you clearly have this conversation where God's command is being challenged. Eve has to make a decision. The excuse that the tempter gives to Eve is this. God is deceiving you. He is withholding a key piece of information from you. That's what's going on here. You're not going to die, but the liar is God. He's lied to you. What he's not telling you, the truth is, you're not going to die. That's an excuse. God's giving you a smokescreen. He knows that when you eat from this tree, something is going to radically change in your soul. Your eyes will be opened, and you are going to be like him. And he doesn't want you to be like him because you will know good and evil. That's a slick, slick line, folks. That is really, really intelligent because not only is he challenging God's word, he's calling God a liar and presenting a piece of information that God never told them. And so the first couple there, you know the story, they take the bait. And, uh, you know, she takes the fruit, she gives it to Adam, who was there, by the way, it says, and he ate it, and everything starts to change immediately in their lives. And God has a conversation with them and confronts them, and there's all kinds of consequences for what they did. But notice, because, it, again, this is extremely slick, and I've heard people say this. They say, well, you know, it's the old lie of the garden. You'll be like God. It's a lie. This is a lie that the tempter told the couple, and he's propagating that lie today. People can be like God, and it's a lie. And he lied to them. Watch what God says, verse 22. The Lord God said, this is going to really be a bit of a jarring moment for some of you. The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life. 
That's a different tree. And eat and live forever. Tree of life, you can follow it right into the book of Revelation. And it is in the book of Revelation finally accessible by humanity at the redemption of all things. But notice, who's the liar here? The tempter calls God a liar. But God says, you've become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So the tempter tries to make God look like a liar. But who's the liar? The liar is the tempter. God didn't have to tell the couple that they, if they ate the fruit, they'd become like him, knowing good and evil. What he had to tell them was, you're going to die if you eat it. Now, did they die immediately when they ate it? No. But the process of spiritual and physical death starts to run its course in their lives. And everything changes for them, not only for them, for everyone. Because now you have the process of sin and death entering into humanity because of this. But notice the slick play of the tempter. Very, very devious. Very, very cunning. I venture to say that none of us would be able to stand up to such a brilliant temptation. Man has now become like one of us, God says. Note the key phrase, how? Knowing good and evil. Now, the question thousands of years later, I suppose, is how have we fared with this knowledge of good and evil? Remember, it was restricted from them. For some reason, God didn't want them to have it. Now we have it. So in that sense, we have that trait that God has, the knowledge of good and evil. How have we done as civilization with the knowledge of good and evil, in your opinion? One being really bad and 10 being really good. What do you think? How many ones? There's one one right, right away. I mean, if you say, well, pretty bad, but you know, not that bad, you're at, at least a two. Three, four, five. How many of you think we've done really, really well with this knowledge of good and evil thing? Like we're a 10 on 10. Off the charts. So probably as you survey humanity, you look and you say, you know, we really have not done very well. We're really good at destroying each other. We're really good at conflict with each other. We're really good at, I mean, some would argue, we're really good at destroying where we live. We, we haven't really done that well. It's like the knowledge of good and evil is, has been too much for us to handle. And we always seem to gravitate more toward the evil side of things than the good side of things. And this really is the story of the Bible. What is God now going to do to fix the human condition because of our propensity and our attraction toward what is evil? Because that's the diagnosis that we see in the scripture is that we have this, this, this sort of attraction to it. And it's too much for us, and it tends to overcome us. So 
the whole plan of redemption is around this problem. And God uh, uh, presents the solution in the person of Jesus. But this thing about the knowledge of good and evil, I mean, you watch, you watch their kids. You know, you watch the first couple's kids. Their names uh, start with a C and an A. Cain and Abel. How'd they do? Not so good. One kills the other. Boy, that was quick. You know, right away, <laughs> their kids are killing each other. You know, right, right away, right away, Adam's blaming Eve. She told me to eat it. The Bible says, the Bible says, What's the Bible say? Okay. <laughs> the, the, the Bible says, Adam, she gave it to Adam who was there and he ate it. And then Adam turns around and starts blaming her. And then their kids are killing each other. And you can just watch the whole thing. You can watch the generations pass. And in a sense, you read those Old Testament narratives and it's one story of one mess after another, after another, after another. Well, sure, you've get, you get some really bright spots. You get some of the careers of some of these leaders are really great, but they have their dark moments. You know, you, 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 it's hard to find anybody in the whole Old Testament that doesn't have a dark side. Very difficult. You get maybe one or two people who you can't find anything wrong with them, but it's very few. You can count them on, you know, less than one hand. Some of the greatest leaders that we see in the Old Testament, dark side, you know? Even Noah, dark side, gets drunk and naked. His son, one of his sons discovered him. Abraham lies about his wife being his sister. His son, Isaac, does the same thing. You, you, you can march on through all of these people and see all of their problems. You know, even Joseph. I mean, I love Joseph because he's seemingly an untarnished character in the Old Testament. But even him, such a big mouth as a young person, has all these dreams and so arrogant about his dreams. And then, of course, his brothers want to kill him too. You know, more people wanting to kill each other. You've got all these problems. You get to uh, David, you know, a very famous story of a very dark side of David. Solomon builds a temple. But the guy's a 500 wives, 300 concubines. I mean, the guy's a fool in that sense. The wisest man who ever lived turns out to be one of the most foolish individuals in terms of that behavior. And you just keep watching it and watching it and watching it, and you see not too good with this knowledge of good and evil. So it isn't easy to discern good and evil. It's difficult to do. Now, it's a theme that you can see in many different places in the scripture. I'm going to deal with it out of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 5, there's a little thing tucked in there that isn't talked about too much. In Hebrews 5, it's a difficult uh, chapter to understand. I did a whole series on the book of Hebrews like two years ago, and it's really difficult to understand. He's in a, the author, probably the apostle Paul, it doesn't say, but it's probably him. He's in a discussion about an old priest by the name of Melchizedek, and he's trying to draw parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus and so on, and it's complicated. 
Verse 11, Hebrews 5. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. <laughs> he's, being, he's going to be quite direct with his audience here. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. He's upset with them. And he says, you need milk, not solid food. In other words, this whole thing that I'm trying to teach you is more in the solid food range of things, but you're still in the milk phase of life, you know? Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Hmm. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish what? Good from evil. There it is again. New American Standard. I like the way this uh, is an older translation. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Hmm. Some observations here. Number one, it is difficult to distinguish good from evil. Let no one fool you on this. I know there are some, definitely some people in this room, and you're black and whiters, and you're just like, life is black and white. It's easy. This is right. This is wrong. You will discover, my friends, the longer that you live this life, that it's not always that easy. It's not always that cut and dry. It is difficult to distinguish sometimes good from evil. And once you do distinguish it, it is difficult to do something about it. Let me give you a, a glaring example of this. And I've cited him before uh, in different examples. It, um, you need to get acquainted, especially those of you who think that the Bible teaches racism and endorses racism, you need to get acquainted with a figure from history, William Wilberforce. And a great way to do this is from a really, really good movie that was done in 2006 called Amazing Grace. It does an excellent job at showing you the story of William Wilberforce and the abolitionists, uh, and uh, even Newton uh, is in there who penned the hymn Amazing Grace. That's why they uh, named it that, and it was released at a particular time, the anniversary of the I think the abolition of the slave trade or the hymn, I forget. But uh, the uh, transcontinental slave trade, if you don't know anything uh, about it, uh, 18th century, you have a, a slave trade network that transported kidnapped Africans to European colonies in the Americas and the Caribbean to work as slaves, mostly on plantations. In 1787, there were campaigners that arose against slavery, Thomas Clarkson, Granville Sharp, and they founded a society of the abolition of the slave trade, 
transcontinental slave trade, believing that ending the trade was the first step towards eradicating slavery completely. And they raised awareness, these abolitionists, about the conditions uh, of these slaves. They boycotted slave-produced goods and petitioned in the British Parliament. Now, in the Parliament, you have this figure, William Wilberforce. Again, brilliantly done in this movie, and it's got all the big-name actors. I'm telling you, folks, you, you, it's funny in some ways. It's, it's sad in some ways. It's, it's superbly done. I don't think there's another Hollywood movie that discusses this period of history at all, except this one. And uh, Wil Wilberforce was a Christian. He was an evangelical. He believed in the inspired word of God, and he petitioned Parliament relentlessly to end the transcontinental slave trade, failed many times until 1807 when the slave trade in the British Empire was abolished. But the slaves in the colonies uh, were not freed until 1838, and only after slave owners rather than the slaves themselves received compensation, imagine. And still today, we have uh, slavery is very much alive uh, unfortunately, and uh, in particular, the, the sex trade. Uh, you've probably heard of the movie Sound of Freedom, which talks about this. But anyway, uh, Wilberforce was in conditions where everybody agreed with this thing. Everybody thought that the slave trade was no big deal. And in the parliament, they even said, listen, we have no evidence from the slaves themselves that they don't like this practice. And all these people in the British Parliament were slave owners. And here you have Wilberforce, who through his understanding and his Christian faith, got to a point where he says, no, people are created in the image of God, and they cannot be treated in such a fashion, regardless of the color of their skin. They cannot be treated in such a fashion because they're created in the image of God. And he stood up against this thing, and the other abolitionists joined him and stood up against this thing and at their own expense of their lives, their health, and so on. And finally, he makes that progress in 1807. Well, why is it that the other people around him didn't do the same? Why is it that such a small minority of people rose up against something so evil? And the film does a good job of telling us what the conditions of these slaves were. It's absolutely horrific, folks. There's no other word to describe it except a horror was done to these people by the thousands upon thousands. Why then such a small group of people rose up against it. Why did the whole mass of people across the empire not even care? Because the people who did care somehow were able to discern good from evil and do something about it. I didn't put it on the, on the screen, uh, but another uh, figure like this in history is a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer was a preacher uh, in the time of the, the, the Nazis and so on. And Bonhoeffer was a, quite radical in that he was very upset, in particular, at the church. 
for the lack of response against this evil regime that was rising, that was slaughtering people. And Bonhoeffer was advocating for people to do something about it, especially people in the church. And Bonhoeffer eventually conspired to assassinate Hitler and was caught and was executed himself. He has a large volume called The Cost of Discipleship, a book quite famous by the preacher Bonhoeffer. Again, why such a small number of people seeing this evil and wanting to do something about it? Apparently, it is difficult to distinguish, and when you distinguish, it is difficult to do something about it. The author of the book of Hebrews also seems to think that there's spiritual maturity required for this. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Well, if there's mature, then there must be immature. He says the immature are still drinking milk. The mature are having meat. Now, back in that day, your diet's pretty simple. You know, a little baby is going to be fed. They're going to nurse somehow, and then they're going to move on to solid food. It's pretty simple. But he's using this as an illustration for what was this level of spiritual maturity of people, and apparently maturity is required to discern good from evil. What does immaturity look like then? Well, he doesn't tell us much about it, except that, you know, he's dealing, he thinks, with a lot of people who are immature. But what does this really look like? Well, if we, if we believe in the univocality of Scripture, if we believe that other places in the Scripture will show us, and that the Scripture speaks with one voice, we've got a glaring example just in, just in one, just, just have to look at one letter or two letters addressed to a church in Paul's day, the church of Corinth. Have you ever read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? You have a glaring example of a bunch of immature Christians. There's a such thing as a mature Christian, and there's a such thing as an immature Christian. And if you read Corinthians, the two letters, you're going to see some examples of some immature believers. So guess what some of the things that were there in, those church, in that church that marked their immaturity? Just guess. Maybe some of you have read the letters before, and you can tell me. Yeah, they, they were, you had Christians taking each other to court and suing each other in front of non-Christian people. So attacking one another in front of a sort of a secular audience, kind of embarrassing. Christians are supposed to love each other, and here they are suing each other. You had Christians saying, I follow this one, and I follow this one. And they were raising up these sort of superstar leaders you know, I follow Peter. No, I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. So we have superstars who we want to follow. Gossip. Yeah, they're gossiping about each other, saying stuff about each other behind their back. Even the way that they did the Lord's table, communion, was so bad that Paul had to step in there and say, some of you you're getting sick and you're dying because God is judging you by the way that you're treating one another. 
The way that you even do communion, he's saying, is so bad. You've got people getting drunk on the wine of communion. And then you've got other people, back in that day it was wine. He says drunk, so I'll leave it to you to decide whether or not it had alcohol in it. Okay? And he said, well, and then you've got another person, they've got no food, they've got nothing at your communion. Back then it was like a feast that they would have. It was a big meal. Was a, there was a lot of relationships that were supposed to happen. That's why he calls them a body, the body of Christ. You see, you, you all hate each other. You hate each other so much. You're so selfish that God is judging you and you're getting sick as a result. Oh, that's some strong judgment. What a mess. So they're gossiping about each other. They're taking each other to court in front of non-Christian audience. They're, uh, you know, they can't even do the whole communion thing without like really, like really, really intense, bad, bad, bad behavior. You've got another thing happening in the church, a really kind of icky thing where you've got a, a man who's in an illicit relationship with his stepmother. Yeah, and Paul says, Kick the guy out of your church. Kick him out. Maybe he'll come to his senses. I'm not making this up, folk. It's all in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They had all kinds of problems in that whole area of sexuality. Oh, what a mess. The church was an absolute mess. Yet, there were some good things that were happening in the church. And this is why he spends two letters trying to correct all of this nonsense immature these this is a market sound familiar folks i've seen stuff like that in the 21st century church maybe not this church specifically but i've seen it in the sort of church milieu slightly different wrapping paper perhaps but very very similar stuff this is a mark of immaturity when there is immaturity it is difficult apparently to discern good from evil you've got to have a level of spiritual maturity to do this how well he kind of tells us how but solid food is for the mature who by constant use when he says solid food and constant use, he's basically talking about the scripture itself and the, the idea of, okay, this is what God has said, this is what God has declared, and the constant use of this is going to help you. I find it interesting that he says this constant use, uh, New American uh, Standard, uh, uh, because of practice. The constant use, practice. It's interesting. He's not saying, well, they just know the, you know, kind of know the Bible. Um, I, I intentionally follow a, uh, a critical scholar online, um, and he basically assaults everything about the historic Christian faith. Very, very smart guy, but he's what you call a critical scholar. So very much on the liberal side of things, would disagree with just about everything that any church believes. <laughs> but very intelligent and speaks the original language and has all kinds of PhDs. So I make it, I, I, I'm intentional about watching his videos. Very curious. This man has a head knowledge of the scriptures, probably better than most Christians, probably better, I would say, than most pastors, honestly. Very, very, a huge amount of knowledge reservoir in this man's brain. 
But he will say things like, the Bible advocates racism, explicitly advocates racism. Now, why is it that someone like William Wilberforce would look into the pages of the same Bible and stand up against the practice of racism, and then a critical scholar, albeit from the 21st century, would look into the same pages of the same Bible and say it advocates slavery. Why is that? There's a difference, friends, between constant use and head knowledge. It's one thing to know the Bible from an intellectual standpoint. It's another thing to use it as something to uh, uh, transform your life and even transform the culture around you. Now, that all depends on your approach, right? If you're going to approach it and say, this is what God is saying, well, that may well be constant use. If you're going to approach it and you're going to say it's just a bunch of gobbledygook that men has said, well, then you're going to probably get a lot of head knowledge. And when you have this constant use of the Scripture as a tool to transform your life or transform even the culture around you, then there is this training that takes place. And people train themselves or have this practice, have their senses trained, he says, to distinguish or discern good from evil. So there's got to be this constant use. There has to be this kind of training in place in order to do this, the author is arguing. And it, nobody can do that kind of work for you. You know, uh, we talked about athletes uh, last week, and, and no athlete will disagree with this. You get to a, to a level, doesn't matter what sport, whether it's an individual sport, whether it's a team sport, doesn't matter. When an athlete gets to a certain level of success and a certain level of achievement, they will always, always, always acknowledge those around them. They get to a certain place, they win a certain whatever, and they will say the coaches, the staff, the trainers, the people who taught me, they'll mention their family members, and that because nobody wins by themselves. Nobody gets to that level of achievement and that accomplishment and that victory alone. They all recognize with humility most of the time that they didn't achieve this solely as an individual, right? But they're doing the work. I, I was watching the, the football game last night, and, you know, I always cheer for the underdog. Always. So I wanted those Chiefs to lose playing in minus 20 with the steam coming out of their, you know, the condensation coming out of their mouths and the head coach's mustache froze over and so on. In minus 20 Celsius playing football. And I thought, oh, it would be just a delight to see these Kansas City Chiefs lose. Well, they won and won easily over the Miami Dolphins, who I guess they're from Miami, they can't handle minus 20. But as it turns out, the Dolphins have a, a sensational athlete on their team, a, a man by the name of Tyreek Hill, who was wearing short sleeves yesterday. Maybe that's why they lost. 
Uh, but he said he, he said he was wearing short sleeves because he didn't want anyone to think that he was soft. The man can run. Uh, he, he's the fastest blinding speed. They call him the cheetah. Fastest runner in the NFL. He's only 5'10", weighs 190 pounds. He's shorter than everybody else. Lightning, absolute lightning speed. So I'm watching this game because I want to see Mr. Tyreek Hill run. This is what I want to see. I want them to throw the ball to Tyreek Hill and see Tyreek Hill run. Well, they threw him the ball one time. Pretty well one time. He caught the ball, he ran, and he scored. That was their only touchdown of the game, Tyreek Hill. But even Tyreek Hill, who is, who is a very uh, confident, shall we say, athlete, will acknowledge that there are people around me who have made me into the, the player that I am. But he did the work, you see. And this is the way that it works. The coach, the family, the mentor, they can encourage the person. They can show the person how. They can show them their blind spots. They can show them, you know, I see this, I see this, try this, change this, look at this. All of these things they can do, but the individual has to do the work. If the individual doesn't have the drive, if the individual doesn't do the whole constant use thing, if the individual doesn't train, if the individual's lazy, if the individual's unteachable, then what do you have? You have a big waste of time. And some athletes are like that. They're extremely talented, very, very talented. Sometimes they can just get out of bed and perform. They're that good, they're that talented, as if they were born to play whatever sport. But they're lazy. They don't train. They don't practice. They don't eat well. They're not coachable. And what happens to athletes like that over time? Eventually, there's somebody better. Eventually, there's someone faster. There's someone stronger. There's someone more talented who will train, who will listen, who will be coached, who will have the drive. To succeed. And the same thing is true when you want to discern between good and evil. At the end of the day, no one is going to lift it for you, folks. No one's going to take that Bible and shove it in front of your face, and you now have to read it, and you now have to train yourself, and you now have to constantly use it because they said so. If you don't have the drive to do it, then you're going to struggle. You're going to run into situations in life where you say, I can't tell. I can't tell if this is right or this is wrong. I can't discern whether or not this is good and this is evil. After all, everyone is doing it. How can it be wrong? And you start listening to all of these other voices. Most of the time, those voices start contradicting themselves anyway. I think of young people, and my heart goes out to teens and young adults you're, you're facing this more than anyone else. I see Shu Yin, Yin Wong is here, seeing it in the university campuses and seeing the students with messages all over the place, many of them that contradict themselves in what they're being taught about life and so on. So much confusion. You're, you're going to remain in a state of confusion if you don't learn to discern good and evil. And sometimes those choices that you make are going to have big, big consequences because you didn't know and you didn't 
train and you didn't know and you walked into what you thought was good and it ended up being evil. And you didn't see it, you couldn't perceive it. So my challenge to you at the beginning of 2024, get into some type of system where you are picking up the Word of God, where you are picking up the Bible and you are getting into a constant use of it. And it doesn't have to be like this one and it doesn't have to be like this one. It has to be the way that it works for you. And that is, at the end of the day, the process that God wants to use to help you see, to help you be like somebody like William, a William Wilberforce who could discern and who could stand up and say, no, this whole thing, this whole empire, this whole parliament is wrong. It's evil, and it has to stop. That's just a regular person, a regular human being who went and said, no, I see something here that God is showing that has to be changed. And he changed, effectively changed the culture. And you still see the, the ramifications of this even today as we continue to deal with something like slavery and fight against it. It's people like this who motivate us to do this, folks. And you can be that kind of person, too. You can be a person who says, you know, in my school, in my place of work, wherever I am, no, I'm going to, even if it means that I'm the minority voice here, because I have this conviction and because I see this and I see it from my God, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to say something. I'm going to do something, whatever it costs me. But you'll never get there without using the Scripture as a tool to benefit your life. Would you stand with me, please? And uh, the musicians, you can come. You did such a beautiful job. You can come and play to your heart's content here as we finish up. Uh, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for each person who's here today. I thank you especially for... Uh, uh, Lord, uh, I think I'm thinking of young people today, and I'm thinking of all of the challenges that they face. I'm thinking of students today. But really, Lord, this is a story for all of us. Even as we survey from Genesis to Revelation, it's really a story about discerning good from evil. It's really a story about what do we do to deal with it now? Uh, how do we solve the problem uh, of evil in people's lives? So. Father, I pray you would help us. You know, for, for one person, it's sitting down with a cup of tea and, and reading a couple of chapters of the scripture. For another, it's a whole bunch of, you know, deep study and all of these things. For another, it's, it's opening up a, an app on a phone and listening to the Bible as it's read. Uh, whatever works for each individual, I pray, Lord, you would challenge us. Your word is still alive. Your word still transforms lives. Your, your word still feeds the heart and the mind and the soul and the spirit. So I pray, God, that uh, you would just motivate us to, to begin the, 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 the training process, as it were. I pray for people who are in the midst of decisions uh, even this week, and the decision has to do with something moral. 
it, it, it's not just this or this. It's, is this moral or is this immoral? Is this right or is this wrong? Is this good? Is it evil? Is it light? Is it darkness? Would you give people discernment, O oh God, no matter where the results would lead? Help people by your spirit to discern. We pray in the name of Jesus together. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. The band's going to play. Remember to pick up your kids. They're out in the hallway and the youth are there as well. Have a wonderful Sunday, everybody. Break my